John chapter 18, page 1071. The uh, well-known British preacher and writer from the last century, John Stott, had this to say about the topic of suffering. He said, the fact of suffering, the fact of suffering presents one of the greatest challenges to the Christian faith. You know, there, there are things that we see and experience in life that challenge our faith. There are questions that come up. But the granddaddy of all the doubt causers, I, I think, has to be the reality of pain and suffering and evil. In fact, uh, philosophers have a title for this problem. They call it the problem of pain, or sometimes it's called the problem of evil. And philosophically put, it goes this way, if God is all-powerful and if God is good, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? You know, if God is really a good God, you know, he wouldn't want suffering, would he? And if he's all-powerful, he could stop it, couldn't he? And so why hasn't he? And so it's a big philosophical question, um, and I suspect it's one that each of us, if, if we've lived any length of time, have wrestled with, though I doubt that most of us come at this question from a philosophical angle. It's not that we're just sitting around on our couch at night wondering what to do, and well, you know, maybe I'll just think about the big questions of life tonight, and what about the problem of evil? You know, that's not typically how we get there to that question. We usually, rather than coming at it philosophically, we usually come at that question experientially. It's as we go through life and we experience things that, that just seem to run aground on, on these other beliefs. And we think, how could this possibly be? It's, it's when you're wa- looking at your favorite you know, news website, if you check a website every day for news, and you, you read about some genocide in the world, and you just think, I don't understand. I, I, my mind can't wrap around that and fit it in with, with God at some level. Um, we we experience this as we become adults and then we look back in our childhood and we realize there was abuse, there was neglect. And you don't realize it when you're a kid because everything's normal as a kid because that's just the way it is. But then you grow up and you say, that wasn't right. Why did that happen to me? Or we hear about the, uh, the mother of three young kids who's killed in the car accident and the drunk driver walks away without a scratch. And you say, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. People who are police officers and doctors and nurses and therapists and pastors, I guess you could throw in that category. And, and anybody, lawyers who, who has a, a sort of a regular um, vocational contact with all of the problems and messes that happen in life. You know, people whose jobs require them to kind of wade into the cesspool on a regular basis of the bad things that happen. And, and it can really, over time, almost embitter you and harden you to, to the possibility of a God who is good and loving and yet in control of things. Well, this morning we come to John chapter 18, and we are cur- turning a very clear, decisive corner in the Gospel of John. We are uh, leaving behind the Last Supper that we've been in since chapter 13, and we are looking now toward what's often called the passion of Christ, his suffering, his trials, his torture, until he dies on the cross, 
and, and is finally lost. So we're into that final leg, and, and it's a very abrupt transition. The, the texture and tone of the story changes dramatically at this point. It, it's like very jarring. You know, chapters 13 to 17, where we've been lingering and marinating since, I went back to check the calendar. We've been studying those chapters since October. And it's been this like beautiful time of savoring the Last Supper. You know, the tone of that passage of Scripture, it's very warm as Jesus is encouraging his disciples. I feel like when I'm reading chapters 13 to 17, it's like God and Jesus are just kind of giving us a big hug and telling us how much God loves us and calling us to love one another. And those chapters kind of feel like this uh, beautiful paddle in a canoe across a placid lake, and we're just sitting there kind of savoring the beauty of God's love for us. But then you turn to chapter 18 and you leave the lake and you drop into rapids. And the rapids become increasingly sharp as the further you go, class one, class two, class six, class seven, until finally it goes over a waterfall and Jesus dies. So that the story changes incredibly at this point. And in that change, I, I sense we're sort of presented with this nagging problem again, the problem of evil. How could an all-powerful, loving God allow evil to happen? Because in chapters 18 and 19, the passion of the Christ is a great evil that's taking place. Something terrible is happening. You know, Jesus was a good man. He was a godly man. According to the Gospel of John, he was the God-man. And he endures this? You know, if anyone on the face of the earth ever deserved to have a peaceful, happy life, it was this man. In fact, you might even take it a step further and say, if Jesus really is the Son of God, as the Bible depicts, one could, I think, reasonably argue that the crucifixion and suffering of Christ is the single greatest atrocity ever committed in human history. Out of all the things that have ever happened, and there's lots of bad things we could look to, to have the Creator Himself so treated by His creation. I mean, has humanity ever stooped lower? Has there ever been a, a more poignant moment of evil and suffering and wrong in the world? And yet what we're going to see here is that even in this darkest of hours is that God is all-powerful. And that God is good, even in the midst of this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this section. It's a long section. It's chapter 18, verses 1 to 27. That's why I'd love for you to have your Bible open, because you'll, you'll just hear it better if you're reading along. Uh, chapter 18, 1 to 27, page 1071. And as I read this story, I want you to listen for those two themes. I want you to listen on your own for the theme of God being in control, and then I want you to listen as well for the theme of God's goodness. And, and I'll read the verses. There's two scenes here. Scene one is the Garden of Gethsemane, what the choir just sang about. Scene two is the trial. And in both of them, we find these themes of God's sovereignty and God's goodness in the midst of great evil. So let me read verses 1 to 27. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it you want?' 
Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of them you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officers arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had built, made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken very openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So here you have two scenes, the arrest in the garden, the trial before Annas, and then leading to the trial before Caiaphas. And in these two scenes of great evil, of great injustice, of great darkness, even the story takes place at night, appropriately so, even in these moments we're going to see the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. So where is God in control? Let's look again at the story of, of the, uh, the garden. You see God's control all over that story. I mean, it, it just comes through again and again. It's amazing. You know, here's Jesus' disciples. They've left Jerusalem in the Last Supper. They go down the Kidron Valley. They go up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's their usual hangout spot. That's where they, they hang out and do their prayer or Bible study or whatever they do together. And so they know where they're going. So does Judas. Judas goes there. Notice he's leading a detachment of soldiers. That, uh, that Greek word for detachment signifies a group of potentially 1,000 soldiers. It may have been 600, 500. It, you know, there were a Roman garrison stationed there in, in the Antonian fortress right next to the temple. So, so when you, in other words, when you picture this, don't just picture kind of Judas and a couple guys. You know, picture like Judas... The, the Jewish officials, and then, you know, 
hundreds of guys with weapons and armor marching up to get this one man, Jesus, and they're carrying torches, and they're heavily armed. And You, you know, you can almost just envision this quiet scene in the garden at night and this this sort of long snake of soldiers winding its way up the mountain with torches in hand, you know, making their way to the garden. But even there, in this opening scene, when things are starting to go bad, we see the sovereign hand of God because Judas is leading them. And God, or Jesus already said that Judas would betray him. So already, as it starts to go downhill, What's happening has already been predicted by Christ. During uh, the Last Supper, Jesus said to Judas, you're going to betray me. And he told the other disciples, look, I told you this ahead of time so that when it happens, then you'll know and you'll believe. Right? So even the, the beginning of this was already predicted. This is not just random bad stuff falling out of the sky on Jesus. It was all part of the plan. Interestingly, we'll get there in a minute, but the trial ends with the denial of Peter. That was also predicted in the Last Supper. So bookending this section are two betrayals, both of which were already called out ahead of time because this is not random, because God has a plan and a purpose. And if that's too subtle, look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. He already knew what was going to happen. He was aware This was not just blind fate or the universe deciding to frown on him or something. There's a plan and a purpose to this. So then they ask him, you know, he says, who do you want, Jesus? I am. Who do you want, Jesus? I am. And then interestingly in verse 9 or verse 8, he says, if you're looking for me, let these men go. Verse 9, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you've given me. Again, this emphasis on prophecy and fulfillment. And even verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, after Peter waxed the guy's ear off, Jesus says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So again, the, the series of events that are unfolding are not being postured as, man, Jesus got a raw deal. Jesus got dealt a bad hand. Poor Jesus, that was unlucky. It's being positioned as, The Father is giving a cup. The Son is taking a cup. There's an intentionality to what's going on here. In fact, if you step out of John, if you have time, read the, the accounts of the Passion of the Christ in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This theme of fulfillment of Scripture, of a divine plan, it's big in the other Gospels. This is a major thing. You know, the more I looked at this, I, I just struck by it. You know, when I, when I came to preach this passage, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to start talking about the, the cross and Jesus is going to die for us. And, but as I studied the passage, I was like, wow, this is a major theme that's leaping out of the text. In fact, when you go to the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, and the apostles now, after the resurrection, are reflecting back on the crucifixion, and they're trying to make sense of it, one of the things they say is, this was God's plan. For instance, you don't have to turn there, but let me just read it. Here's Acts chapter 2. Peter, at the day of Pentecost, is preaching his famous sermon. And he said this about Jesus. This man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you, get this, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. So there were wicked men 
They were acting wickedly. They're accountable for their actions. They're not puppets. They're not robots. They're doing something that is against God's will, murdering someone unjustly. And yet somehow, in a way I cannot explain to you, that I do not understand, but God was also sovereignly superintending that even these evil actions were part of God's set purpose and plan so that they were acting and God was acting and both were real and both were significant. And like I said, that's beyond my understanding how God's will is compatible with our will. But then again, there's a lot of things about God I don't understand, how he does what he does and who he is. He's, he's great and awesome. But that's the picture. It's of a terrible unfolding event with God in control in chapter 18. What I find interesting is how the, the main characters react to it. You have two main characters. You have, a, you have the main actor and you have a supporting actor in these two scenes. The main actor is Jesus. And then, you know, best supporting actor goes to Peter. <laughs> Peter's the other actor. There's the two characters in these two scenes. They're in both scenes. And Peter kind of acts like a foil to highlight Jesus in these. They, they, they sort of play off and over against each other. So how does Jesus react to this when the, the bad things start to happen? He, it's almost like he walks out and just puts his hands out and says, okay, take me, tie me up, whatever, ready to go. He, he just surrenders himself to it so calmly. You know, it, it, it's amazing. I, look at his reaction. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and said, who you want? Well, that's remarkable to me. I mean, if, if that was me, if this was a verse about me, and it, instead of Jesus, it was Jeremy, it would, it would read, Jeremy, knowing all that was going to happen to him, climbed up an olive tree and hid. Or it would say, Jeremy, knowing all that was about to happen to him, jumped over the back wall and ran and made his disciples cause a distraction. Or... You know, Jeremy, knowing all that was going to happen to him, took up defensive positions around the entrance to the, you know, Garden of Gethsemane and said, fight to the last man. You won't take this sword till you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. You know, this is the Alamo. I mean, we would stand there and fight. But instead, Jesus, almost like David, moving toward Goliath, moves out toward them. And rather than throwing a sling, he says, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And then verse 6. Isn't verse 6 kind of weird and cool? He said, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. And, I, you know, when I was reading this, I'm like, why did they fall down? It's like they're on the Mount of Olives, and it was like, ah, you know, like, why, I, you know, why did they fall? What, what was going on there? And it's kind of an interesting, interesting little verse. And I think what helps is, is just to remember that what Jesus said, I am he, now, in Greek, the phrase is literally, I am. Just like when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was born, I am. And it has this divine uh, weight to it. It's actually language that God uses about himself in, in Isaiah. I am. And so it's almost like, I, I guess the way I interpret the falling down is it's as if the, the divine glory, the, the fact that he is the word incarnate, God incarnate, the divine glory sort of pulses out of him, but, but it's veiled, it's hidden, it's still obscured, they don't see it fully, it's not like God in all of his glory showing up, but even in that veiled state, 
He just says, I am. And, you know, and, and I think the point is, Jesus didn't have to go quietly. He could have done whatever he wanted. It says in another gospel, he, he tells the disciples, don't you know I could call down legions of angels? You think this detachment of soldiers is scary? You know? He didn't have to go quietly, but he just, he went. He, he submitted himself to the plan of God that had been laid out before the foundations of the world. This scene reminds me of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the great C.S. Lewis classic, Aslan, the Great Lion. You know the story, Aslan represents Jesus in that uh, allegory. And uh, Aslan surrenders his life to be killed so that he can save Edmund. Edmund had broken the law, and according to the law of Narnia, he deserved to die. But Aslan substitutes himself for Edmund. And so there's that scene, you know, where Aslan, the great lion, is walking up, surrendering himself to the, the white witch and all of her, who represents Satan and all of her evil demons and monsters. And, and you know, they, they go up to, like, you know, tie up Aslan, and, you know, they, they're always kind of like, Ooh, because he's still the lion. He's still the lion. And so here he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah, going like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. He just says, I am here, take me. And then they fall down, and so he's got to say it again. Who are you looking for? Come on, guys. Get up, get up. Let me help you. Let's try it again. Who are you looking for? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, I am you know, let them go. You can take me. It's incredible. He surrenders himself to the Father's will. Contrast with Peter. <laughs> no, you don't. Ha-ha! And Peter's, you know, takes off a guy's ear and he's slashing around. I mean, I don't know if that means Peter was accurate or if he was just wild. But whatever, he chops at a guy and he's going crazy. And I, I so wish when I looked at this story and I tried to identify with the character, I could identify with Jesus. But I identify with Peter. You know, no, it's not fair. It's not right. How dare you? It's not supposed to happen to me. I've known you all these years. I've been a faithful servant. So why is this happening to me? And, you know, we're slashing and mad and rattling our saber in heaven and mad at God, and you know, that, that's what we do. We get mad at our circumstances and at people, and, and we're just filled up with frustration that our things aren't working out the way they're supposed to, and our dreams aren't working out, and our hearts are being broken. How could God let this happen? And sometimes that's a very, not just kind of a bratty question, it's a deep, painful question because of the reality of evil and suffering in this world. I'm, I'm not trying to trivialize it. It's a painful question, and yet... There we are like Peter, slashing away. It's sort of like the rapids are starting now, and Jesus, his response to the rapids is, put the paddle down and just ride. And Peter's response to the rapid is, pick up the paddle and paddle backwards. No, 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 no. And, and he, can't, he can't give in and follow and let God's will be done. He hasn't learned to pray like Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus is surrendering himself, though he could have stopped it. And here's Peter, who has no power to stop it, fighting like crazy. What a contrast. But God is in control, and Jesus trusts him. Jesus knew the plan. I suppose that's one difference. We don't know the plan. I wish we knew the plan. 
Sometimes we, we find out about the plan a little later on. Sometimes you can go your whole life and crazy things happen and there's things we'll never know this side of heaven. And so part of it is, you know, we're going by faith. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. We don't know what's about to happen to us. But even though we don't know all the details of the plan, we know from Scripture there is a plan. We know that in the Old Testament, whenever God shows up, he's on a throne. He's a king. He's in charge. He's called the Almighty. Uh, you know, one of my favorite verses, one of the ones I cling to, is Romans eight twenty eight. Uh, we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. It doesn't say that all things are good, and that's so important. We're not saying here, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're not saying that cancer is good. We're not saying that abuse is good. We're not saying that what happened to Jesus is good. We're not saying that murder is good. But we're saying, what are we saying? We're saying God is good. God is good. And that God is so awesome that somehow he can even take the worst thing and he can use it for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And sometimes I hear that and I just look at the problem and I say, I, no clue how you can do that, God. And it's a, it's a step of faith. And there's Jesus stepping out in faith. And there's Peter fighting like we so often do. I don't know, where, where are you today? Are, are you, uh, do you have some things going on in your life that are causing you to struggle with trusting God's plan for you? You know, are you fighting, back paddling, slashing your sword? Are you angry at God? Are you angry at your circumstances? I just want you to know God is good and God is in control. And I can't tell you what he's doing because I don't know. But I know what his word says and I know what I've seen again and again. And I know what he did here, that he's in control and that he's good. So that's the second part of it. So let's move on to the second part. Let's look to the trial. So in the garden, I think one of the major themes that sort of surprisingly pops out is the sovereignty of God over that situation, the plan and the purpose of God. But in the trial, the, the goodness of God also comes out. It, that's just on bold display that God is good. Not that things are good, but that God is good. So here's Jesus just to set this scene. He's now taken from the Mount of Olives back down the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem and now to the courtyard of the high priest. Now notice there's a couple characters here. Look at verse 13 and 14. You got Annas. Do you see that? You got Caiaphas. So let me just tell you who these two guys are. I found this interesting. But Caiaphas was the high priest. And at the time, Annas uh, is his father-in-law. He used to be the high priest. And he was deposed about 15 years before this story. And uh, Annas, he's a fascinating historical figure. From what we know about him from the history books, he, uh, think about this. If any of you guys like mobster movies, think of The Godfather. That's Annas. He's The Godfather. He's pulling all the strings behind the scenes. He was a powerful, connected puppet master. You know, Caiaphas, he's not the high priest, but guess what? His son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the high priest. And we know from the history books, in addition to Caiaphas, Annas had five other sons who served as high priest. So even though he wasn't technically the high priest, people still called him the high priest because he was behind the scenes, very powerful, very influential. So it's interesting here that Jesus is going on trial, but before Jesus goes to Caiaphas, who's the official high priest, who will do the official trial, he's got to go to Annas. He's got to go visit the Godfather. 
you know, and stand before this guy who's probably pulling the strings behind the scenes on the whole episode. And it's here that we read about the goodness of God, that even in this sort of twisted uh, mockery of justice, God is good. And I think the goodness pops out, it's hinted at in verse 14. Caiaphas, it says in verse 14, was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good for one man to die for the people. Good if one man died for the people. So earlier in John, Caiaphas had said about Jesus, it's better for that guy to die for the people. And interestingly, what Caiaphas meant was not, let's have Jesus die for our sins. That's not what he meant. He meant, let's have Jesus die so he doesn't cause Rome problems so that the Romans come and crush the people. So he was saying, let's let Jesus die to save us from the Romans. But it's, it was sort of like he, he said something and he kind of prophesied and he didn't even know it. It's like people say, I was a poet and I didn't even know it. You know, he's a prophet and he didn't even, I don't know, know it. Is that rhyme? But anyway, he, he didn't realize he was prophesying. He didn't realize what he was saying. But Jesus was going to die for the people, but to save them from their sins. And so there's the goodness of God that even though this terrible thing is happening, God is going to bring good, good out of it. In fact, you could say this is the greatest evil that's ever happened on the face of human history, and out of it is going to come the greatest good that ever emerged on the human story, which is salvation for us and our sins, from our sins, right? Because look, look at the trial. It's highlighted in the trial. Again, who are the two characters? Jesus, Peter. They're both enduring a trial. Jesus is on trial. Peter is on trial. And the two trials couldn't be more different. You know, Jesus is being accused, and it's a mockery. It's a kangaroo court. It's like Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, he should be judging you. You're judging him, and you're smacking him in the face? Like, what in the world? It's the biggest miscarriage of justice I mean, before Jesus even walked in the room to see Annas, do you think they already knew what the verdict was going to be? This thing was loaded, fixed, rigged. It's not a trial. It's just a setup. It's, a, it, it's, it's awful what they do to him. And yet he's the innocent one. He's the one who is the son of God. He's the one who should be and will be judging them, and they think they can judge him. The innocent one is judged and found guilty before he even really has a chance to say anything. This is not a real trial. And then there's Peter. Look at his trial. He's being tried too. It's kind of an informal trial. He's standing there by the fire and, and they're saying to him, hey, you're one of them, right? No, 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 wrong guy. Aren't you one of them? No. Third time, he denies it. So, so here's a guy who should be found guilty. Here's a guy who should be getting popped in the mouth for denying Jesus. Like someone should have been like, you just lied, you know, Peter. Come on. But instead of him getting popped in the mouth, Jesus is getting slapped. Like, wow. And instead of, you know, Peter being accused, Jesus is being accused, and Peter's going off scot-free. In fact, Peter's just blending in with the enemies of Jesus. Just notice the imagery here in verse 18. It was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, Warming himself. He's standing with the enemies of God. He's standing with the bad guys. He's blending in with them by the fire. Aren't you one of them? No, no, no. 
You know, whew, this is nice. I'm one of you. I'm not one of them. I'm one of you. He's totally betrayed Jesus. In fact, this just blew my mind when I saw this. What is Peter, what are the words Peter uses out of two of the three betrayals? I am not. Aren't you one of them? I am not. I am not. So twice Jesus says, Ego me, I am, I am. And twice Peter says, Uke me, uke me, I am not. It's like, oh, that gave me chills. And I was like, as the book ends, the faithful witness who's going down and the unfaithful, cowardly betrayer who's walking out free. Like, wow, that's so wrong. And yet it's so good. You know why? Because again, I look at the story and I'm like, who am I in the story? Oh, I wish I was. No, but I'm here. I'm Peter. I'm with him. I'm a denier. You know, you're not one of those religious guys, are you? Oh, no, no, not me. That's your pastor. Yeah, but I'm not religious. Let's talk about something else. You know? What'd you do this weekend? And you were at a retreat and it was awesome and God spoke to you. And what'd you do this weekend? Oh, nothing. I've Nothing. You know, we deny him and we hide and we just want to be, you know, oh, I'm just I'm one of the regular people. I'm not any different. You know, don't look at me funny. I don't want to, I don't want people thinking I don't belong. I want to fit in whatever the circumstances are. We deny him. We betray him. We're unfaithful to him. We, we not only deny him with our words, we deny him with our lives, with, with our disobedience. We just don't walk closely with him. We don't look like. We look like we're standing with them instead of standing with him. Sometimes it's even worse. We're, we're the people who are standing there accusing Jesus. How dare this happen to me? God, I will never believe in you unless you do this for me because, and, you know, as if we have a right to put God on trial. Like Job, we think we can call God to the courtroom. And here we are. We're, we're with Caiaphas and Annas and all those guys accusing God of harming us. And how dare God do this to me? As if we could accuse God. You know, we're, we're deniers and we're accusers. And, ah. and here comes Jesus to be slapped with the slaps that I deserve. To carry a cross that I should carry. To be judged with the judgment that I deserve. Who crucified Christ? We all did with our sins. And I believe that's the point of verse 11. That verse now makes a little more sense. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You know, what's the cup? What does that mean, the cup? I mean, he's not literally drinking a cup. What is it? You say, well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a symbol for the suffering he's about to endure. yes. It is. But there's something more. Because if you go back to the Old Testament, the cup is actually an Old Testament image for the judgment of God. So you go back to the Old Testament prophets. and here, So here's the picture in the Old Testament. A nation is sinning against God. They're worshiping idols. They're breaking God's laws. And it's like they got this cup of judgment that just keeps filling up. And the more they do, the more it fills up, and the more it fills up, till finally it reaches the spillover point. And God's like, all right, I've had it. And he takes that nation, and it's almost like he pulls their head back and makes them drink the whole thing. And in the image of the Old Testament, it, it says they will stagger and fall down and be, do- and be destroyed. So it's like they get drunk you know, on the wrath of God, and they're like, crash and done. 
So when Jesus says, I'll drink the cup, he's not just saying, yeah, I'll suffer. He's saying, I will take God's judgment against sin on myself. You know, the waiter is bringing the cup of judgment to us, and Jesus intercepts that and says, no, I'll take that. And he downs it himself, all of it, all the way down. See, here's the thing. God hates sin because he's good. He's good. That means he hates evil. He hates it more than you and I do. The problem is that sin and evil is not just out there. It's here. So now I've got a problem because God's, as a good God, a good judge, he can't let me keep getting away with what I do. And so I deserve judgment. And yet his goodness is so great that he sent his own son to substitute himself in my place, to take my cup, to take my cross, so that I could go free. So that his goodness and his holiness and his love and his mercy all just come crashing together at the cross in a great saving thunderclap that rescues me. It's amazing. The whole gospel is right there. A holy God in control who deserves our worship, sinful people who reject him and deny him, and a Savior who dies in their place and takes the cup of wrath so that they can be forgiven. The whole gospel right here before us. Man, if we really believe that gospel, it changes you. It changes you big time. It makes you humble. It, it, it makes you dependent upon God. It's this gospel that enables you to kind of go with the difficult times of life, even though it's still hard. You know, what, what kind of church would we have if we all believe this gospel deeply. You know, last Sunday, Pastor Godwin preached uh, what I thought was a really phenomenal sermon on church unity. And I was, I'm still kind of touched by that and just been thinking about it and chewing on that. And, um, but, you know, where do we get unity as a church? It's the gospel that gives us unity. It's when we're all standing at the foot of the cross, undone, both by our own sin and by the love of God for us, that we're on common ground and it just obliterates all the stupid things that we use to kind of measure ourselves against each other. Well, you're from that town and I'm from this town and you like that team and I like this team and you have that much money and I have this much money and you know you, you voted for him and I voted for him or whatever. And all those things that would push us apart and pull us apart and at the foot of the cross, it all just seems like powder and dust compared to this awesome reality of being brought before God. And so I believe that the gospel humbles us and it unifies us. And hopefully it makes us into a church where, where grace is the atmosphere. And, and where we're, we as a church are patient and long-suffering with each other. Because how, who am I to get up and, on my high horse and, you know, be impatient with you? Because God's been so patient with me. Look what he did. You know, the cross just creates the atmosphere of grace that holds a disparate people together as the church. So, how can God be all-powerful, good, and yet evil in the world? And I'm sorry to tell you this morning, I do not have a short, pithy, tidy answer to that question. I do not have an elevator speech length, blog post sized, simple, philosophical, 
fortune cookie thing that I can give to you and you could memorize so that when the skeptic asks you that question, you pull it out and say, ha-ha, and you read it, and then he's like, oh, you're right. You know, I, don't, I don't have that. I, I mean, you know, I, I have ideas and thoughts, and it's kind of a conversation that you sort of have with life throughout your whole life as you try to figure this out. But even though I don't have a, a little fortune cookie-sized answer to that question, what I do have is, and what many of us have, is an experience. We have experienced the saving grace of God that has come through the greatest evil that ever existed. And even though I can't give you a philosophical slam dunk, I have experienced forgiveness. I have been reconciled to God, and it's come through the cross, which was bad and awful, so that at the very like core of my Christianity, at the very center is an experience of the sovereignty and love of God accomplishing good through evil. And, and whatever else my mind can understand or can't understand, I know that. I know what the gospel has done. And so, even though I can't explain it to you, I know that it can be done. It's been done. And what we really need is not necessarily a philosophical answer, though that's a good thing to think about. What we really need is to be brought to the foot of that cross and to bow our hearts before Christ. Are you looking for an answer or are you looking for a savior? Are you looking for an argument? Or are you looking for Christ crucified and raised to save people like us? Until you're ready to face the fact that, yeah, there's a problem with evil in the world. You know what it is? It's right here. Until you're ready to face that and face Christ. It'll always be kind of a philosophical thing, but I just want you to know there's a way forward. It's through faith in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you because somehow you have brought good out of great evil, and we still don't fully understand it, but we trust you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin. We worship you this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us. We worship you and love you. Lord Jesus, I pray that the, the amazing uh, truth of the gospel would, like an auger, just screw a couple screws tighter into our souls, and it would push out the fear, and it would push out the anger, and it would push out the self-righteousness. We might be in awe of the gospel. Lord, I pray, unify our church around the gospel. Give us greater love and patience and long-suffering with each other in light of what you've done. And God, I pray that this would be a grace-filled church. I pray we'd be a church where people whose lives are a mess could come and find a very patient congregation because we're a bunch of people who realize that our lives were and to a degree still are a mess. But we're being saved by your grace. And may we be a place where there is a lot of long-suffering and patience and love so that people like us can find the Savior. And Lord, I pray that anyone here who doesn't know you, Jesus, maybe people who are angry at you, even though they shouldn't be, but they are, God, I pray that they would find a loving Savior, a Savior who even died to pay the penalty for our unjustified anger. Even that was covered. It's all covered, Lord. Help us just to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.